Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 7. Mudbloods and Murmurs. Harry spent a lot of time over the next few days dodging out of sight whenever he saw Gilderoy Lockhart coming down a corridor. Harder to avoid was Colin Creevy, who seemed to have memorized Harry's timetable. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Every Friday night when I was growing up, we would convene at my grandparents' house for Friday night dinner, which was the Sabbath dinner. And there were always just dozens of people there. It was all my cousins, all my aunts and uncles, business associates of my grandparents, just endless people there. And one Friday night, my grandfather brought a business associate whose name was Mary. And I was being introduced to Mary, and Mary said hi and started talking to me. And I was very confused because Mary did not have an accent, and she was a grown-up. And so I tried to express this to my mom. I was really confused. I was like, Mom, what's wrong with Mary's voice? But I did it in that way that was just like in front of all the adults because I didn't know I was asking a weird question. And my mom sort of smiled and was like, what do you mean what's wrong with Mary's voice? And I was like, well, she sounds like a kid. And my mom was like, what do you mean she sounds like a kid? And throughout this conversation, it became very clear that I was under the assumption that like going gray or getting wrinkles or growing taller, that an accent was something that happened to you as you got older. My cousins and I talked like we spoke. And then my parents' generation had sort of these middling accents because they moved to the United States in their teens or 20s. And then my grandparents and their whole generation, everybody who was always at Friday night dinner, had these very thick accents. And I just thought that that was something that happened as you got older. And as this got figured out what my question was implying, all of the adults were just laughing. And I had no idea what was funny. I felt very embarrassed and very confused. You know, I was like, I don't understand what you're not understanding. I don't understand why this is funny. And I was mortified and I didn't really understand why. And I was just reminded of that story in our reading this week when Hermione gets called a mudblood. She knows it's bad, but she doesn't know why. And those moments of public confusion are interesting because I feel like there's always some sort of social dynamic that's being revealed right under it whenever there's that sort of miscommunication. So I'm excited to talk about confusion this week with you, Casper. Oh, my goodness. That is maybe one of my favorite stories. I love that, that you would just think, yes, as we grow older, we start sounding Hungarian. <laughs> <laughs> I, not everybody was Hungarian. Yiddish, 
Polish, whatever. Yeah. I think the world would be a better place. <laughs> Um, but I do think you're really right. There's such an interesting moment that happens when confusion turns to clarity in public. You know, there's this kind of painful learning moment. So I'm excited to learn more about that as we read this chapter together. But first, there is no confusion about the fact that I'm going to win this 30-second recap. How do you feel? I also feel unconfused about the exact same thing that I am going to win this 30-second recap. Amazing. Yeah. All right, Vanessa. Well, you're going first. So let's see what you got. Three, two, one, go. Harry spends the first several pages of the book of the chapter just trying to avoid Gilderoy Lockhart and Colin Creevy, who's obsessed with Harry and wanting to take his picture all the time. Then so much Quidditch happens, Quidditch, Quidditch, like a lot of, you know, telling people what Quidditch is. Great. And then um, Ron and Hermione are down and they are watching Harry practice Quidditch and Draco is now the seeker because his dad bribed the Quidditch team. Um, he calls Hermione something bad. Ron curses him and then they both have to do detention and Harry has to hang out with Lockhart and he hears a voice. <laughs> Oof. Well, strong beginning, strong ending, some missing in the middle. It's like just a bread bread sandwich with nothing tasty. I said Quidditch too many times, which took up a lot of seconds. But I also think that this chapter says Quidditch too many times. So I was just being accurate. Are you ready to not do as well as I did? All right. Bring it on. Ready, set, go. So um, Harry is being stalked by um, Colin Creevy, who loves taking pictures of him. And they go down to the Quidditch match where Oliver Wood gives this, like, long, boring tactical spiel. They get on the the pitch. And then the Slytherins show up. Draco's the new seeker. <gasps> then there's money from Dad, who's paid for all the things. <gasps> and then they um, go uh, – a mudblood moment. Um, then they go to Hagrid's hut. And Ginny has been there for some reason. And then um, they polish things. Harry answers letters. And he hears a voice. And it's scary. And it's going to rip you. <sighs> Yeah, that was pretty good. Well, I feel like with practice comes perfection. (laughs) Anyway, let's dive into this week's theme. Vanessa, let's start with the moment that you brought up in your story. The story takes a turn in this chapter in a way that is really important, in that Draco calls in front of a whole bunch of people, he calls Hermione a mudblood, which is a word that we haven't encountered so far. So just like Hermione's in the dark, you know, so are we. we. We don't know what this word means, but it's clear that it is something very, very nasty. And she's confused. And so I, I wonder, what do we learn from this moment? The thing that strikes me about confusion and this really hateful moment is how much our guts can tell us when we're confused. Even though Hermione and Harry don't know what's going on, the text says Harry knew at once that Malfoy had said something really bad because there was an instant uproar at his words. Harry doesn't know what it is that Malfoy just said. He just can tell from the surroundings that something really awful has happened. And I feel like that's often true and that there's something beneficial about going with your gut in those moments of letting your antenna sort of lean in even when you are confused. I think the thing that struck me is that we hear that word mudblood in context. So Malfoy says, no one asked your opinion, you filthy little mudblood. He spat. And so even though we don't know what that word means, the kind of packaging around it is clearly so venomous and hateful. Even if that word doesn't register, we know it's meant with malice. So that context is really key here, I think. I agree. And I think that maybe this isn't a totally confusing moment because there's so much context being presented. 
I think that the moments in which I am truly profoundly confused is where I can't even figure out what my gut is telling me when other people are also confused around me. You know, one of the most confusing moments of my life was when we watched the second plane hit the second tower when the Twin Towers were hit. And I feel like everybody was confused. There was no context. We all thought that that first plane hitting the World Trade Center was an accident. And then it suddenly became very clear that it wasn't an accident, that that was too big to be a coincidence. But the global confusion was what was so existentially disturbing in that moment. Actually, that's so helpful, Vanessa, because I think there's two levels of confusion here. There's the initial, what does that word mean? Well, I'm guessing it's something horrible because of the context in which it was said. But then there's exactly what you're describing now, which is a second level of confusion of why is this happening? Like, I can imagine Hermione standing there and thinking like, okay, I'm better in school than you are. But like, does that deserve this level of vitriol? You know, just in that moment with the Twin Towers, like, why is this happening to us? That there's a kind of existential confusion there of which is going to be a much more difficult confusion to overcome as we figure out more and more about the kind of systems of racial purity that are constructed in the wizarding world. So, Casper, I'm wondering, so one of the often beneficial moments of confusion is that it calls some sort of underlying tension or misunderstanding to the forefront, and then we are given an opportunity for meaning-making afterwards. And we are literally marched into Hagrid's hut to do some meaning making just a few pages from now. And the meaning making, I'm wondering if it makes anything less confusing, the work that they do here to unpack what happened. You know, Ron and Hagrid are trying to explain to Hermione and Harry what this word means and what the history of pure blood superiority is. And Hagrid uses the line that Hermione is muggle-born and there isn't a spell our Hermione can't do. Do you feel like that is a sufficient way to help explain the hate? It felt insufficient to me, and I'm not sure why. That's really interesting because I loved that comment. And I I love the line. I love how protective he is. Right, because he says our Hermione. And I think what he's doing there is, you know, by this hateful mudblood word, Hermione has been thrown out of the wizarding world. And by saying our Hermione, Hagrid is bringing her back in and it's making sure that she knows that she belongs here. So even though I think you're right, Hagrid isn't able to fully explain the systemic levels of racism that we're seeing in this moment around pure-bloodedness and muggle-born backgrounds, but he is able to do the the work of making her feel like she belongs. So I think he's inhabiting that protective, nearly maternal role again in the way that he did for Harry in book one. He's doing that here for Hermione. So Casper, I agree with you completely. It's beautiful. And I'm very touched by the line. And I think that if I were Hermione in that moment, that is exactly what I would want to hear Hagrid say. But I'm wondering if Hagrid and Ron are actually perpetuating the exact cycle that we are condemning by saying there are good wizards and bad wizards. And these are bad wizards who have this terrible racist point of view, which I agree with them, right? This is a terrible racist point of view. But they aren't creating curiosity in Hermione and Harry. They're not giving historical context for why things are the way they are. They aren't unpacking the real confusion that Hermione is feeling here, which is why on earth would anybody want to 
attack me just for the fact that I have muggle parents when I'm just curious if there's a reason why these old wizarding bloodlines are anti-muggle and if it's because they've been oppressed and had to live in secret for hundreds and thousands of years or whatever the reasons are. And I'm not saying that that validates their hate in any way, but I feel like only by understanding it can we actually stop it. And Hagrid is preventing any learning from happening in this moment. And he's not helping the situation become less confusing. He's just emotionally taking care of her. And maybe that is the right thing to do in this moment. Maybe now is not the exact right moment to have this intellectual conversation. But I'm worried that he's just making himself feel better rather than letting this be a teachable moment. I think what you're saying about the teachable moment is so helpful, Vanessa, because Ron says, I mean, the rest of us know it doesn't make any difference at all. Look at Neville Longbottom, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we do know that it makes a difference. And this is kind of a classic, you know, white parent response of like, oh, you know, we don't see race or like I'm colorblind. The instinct is right to say fundamentally, yes, we are all equal in dignity and value. But what they're missing is what you're pointing to, which I love, which is that race is real in this world because the way that we react to one another. And so Ron and Hagrid could say to Harry and Hermione, listen, it doesn't make any difference to your inherent dignity and worth, but your bloodline, as it were, is really going to show up in the way that you encounter the world. And you better get educated about how so you can be smart about it. So I had never read that into this moment before. Uh, this is really cool. So I think even this room is a symbol of how confusing the world is. So there is Hagrid's umbrella is in this room. And so it says, Harry noticed Hagrid's flowery pink umbrella leaning against the back wall of the cabin. Harry had reason to believe before now that this umbrella was not all it looked. In fact, he had a strong impression that Hagrid's old school wand was concealed inside it. So there's concealment happening in this room. Then there are these engorged pumpkins that Hagrid isn't supposed to have the ability to engorge. Ron is throwing up slugs because of this racist thing that no one wants to talk about. There's just all of these things happening in this room where four characters who are actually quite intimate with one another and love each other very much and trust each other very much. There are about a million secrets happening in this room that nobody is allowed to talk about, even though everybody is sort of in on them. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think Harry especially is in this moment of learning about kind of morality, but also the confusing, fuzzy lines of it. You know, Hagrid isn't supposed to have a wand, and yet he's illegally engorging pumpkins. And, you know, we shouldn't see difference between muggle-born wizards and pure-blood wizards. And yet here's a way in which it's being acted out in a really nasty way. And so Harry's kind of being educated, as is Hermione, of course, in this moment. But it's, yeah, the confusion is not lifted. There's certainly learning, but there's a lot more clarity that's needed. I do think also to that point, they go to Hagrid's hut for healing. They go there because Ron is throwing up slugs and they think that Hagrid is going to be able to help. And the only thing to do is to let Ron keep throwing up slugs. Like there's nothing that Hagrid can do. He gives him a basin and is like, throw them all up. And so it's they go there for this sort of healing. They're hoping that an adult can solve this for them. And the adult can't. I'm sure Lockhart would have suggestions. <laughs> I'm sure Lockhart would have so many suggestions. 
One of the reasons I love this chapter so much is because hunky Oliver Wood is all over the pages. And he is deeply confused when he leads the team out onto the Quidditch pitch. And, you know, it's very early and he's booked it for this special training session because they're finally going to win the cup after missing out so closely last year. And suddenly the Slytherins appear en masse. And Wood is totally confused. You know, he says... I don't believe it, Wood hissed in outrage. I booked the pitch for today. We'll see about this. And so Wood is totally frustrated and confused by how this has happened. He's booked the pitch ahead of time. You know, why is the system failing? How come these Slytherins are showing up? Are they just being their dastardly selves? Or is it that somehow the the system has failed me and here I am and we're now double booked? What's going to happen? And I I feel like his confusion is really frustrating because he can't figure out how to make a good argument. If you don't understand what social norm is being crossed in this moment, it prevents you from from being able to defend yourself if you're confused as to what's going on. You don't know what next step to take. And Wood does exactly that. He says, Flint, this is our practice time. We got up especially. You can clear off now. So he he's going down that strategy of saying, listen – the system's working. We've got our time clear off. And therefore, he's going to feel really stupid when Flint then reveals that they've got this special permission from Snape to be there because they've got this new seeker in Draco Malfoy. And so I think the reason why we feel so uncomfortable with confusion is because so often the next step is some form of pain or betrayal or disappointment. Like confusion so often just leads us to something bad. And so as soon as we feel that, I don't know, for myself, like just my whole body tightens and I get stressed because now I'm not in control anymore. Confusing other people is a form of bullying again, right? Like we see that in the books. The confundus charm is a way of taking advantage of people, right? It's in war, you call it the element of surprise. And Wood is completely surprised. He put so much planning into this practice and it's just being taken from him. But what's interesting is Hermione's moment of complete clarity in the midst of all this confusion. Now, she can't dissect everything that's going on. But one thing is incredibly clear to her, and that is the fact that Draco has bribed his way onto the team. We find out the reason that Slytherin has gotten a note from Snape that they are allowed to use the pitch is because they have to train their new seeker. We find out that the new seeker is Draco. And that Draco's father, Lucius, has bought new brooms for the entire Quidditch team. And Hermione just, I wonder if this is a good tactic in the middle of confusion is to start naming the things that you do know are true. It's like, okay, I'm confused about everything that's going on. But one thing I know is true is that this is corrupt and that Draco has bribed his way onto the team. I know that. And it's like start building your foundation on facts that you can identify. And this is so interesting, Vanessa, because just as Hermione does that, you know, she says at least no one on the Gryffindor team had to buy their way in. Exactly in response to that is when Draco says, no one asked for your opinion, you filthy little mudblood. So when he is ruined of his kind of bullying stance, what does he do? He lashes out with this venomous word to try and make her feel small because she has pointed through his facade and spoken the truth. And so I think we see a really interesting dynamic there of, you know, someone trying to sow confusion, right, the Slytherin team. Hermione responding with total clarity. She's not bamboozled at all. And so what does the Slytherin team retreat to? It's another form of superiority that they're trying to impose. 
I completely agree. And so I wonder if elemental truths help us get through confusing moments is what I'm curious about. Could Hermione say, I don't know what that even meant, but it sounded hateful, so you must be feeling pretty defensive right now. To what extent can we just in these moments where we feel confused keep being honest and keep saying true things, not in order to beat somebody else, but in order to just keep grounding ourselves? I think that's a beautiful invitation for us to practice. You know, when when we feel confused, how can we stay elevated in that? How can, how can we try and be, you know, big in our response rather than retreat to a little self where we feel we have to, you know, hunker down and retreat? That's hard to do, but... I think that's a really good practice to try and try and pick up somehow. It's nearly impossible to do. I mean, when you're truly confused as to what's going on, right, it's it's like being dizzy. And I think, you know, maybe the goal is to be like a dancer who twirls, right, who like when you turn, you fix your point on on one thing. But I think that if you are untrained in this and you're spinning a lot, you just get dizzy and fall. So – That's so cool. Like, what's the thing that we can return to? I mean, this is in some way what mantras have always been about. You know, what are the elemental things that I don't even need to try and remember? They're just built into my DNA because I repeat them over and over again. And, you know, if if Hermione had woken up and every day said, you know, I'm an amazing witch with gifts and talents to serve the world. I am an amazing witch with gifts and talents to serve the world. I think that can kind of be a little shield sometimes against this kind of attack that, If we know this to be true, then no one can come through and bring us down, or at least it's harder for them to. So I don't know. I'm amazed where we got with this conversation about confusion and the Quidditch pitch, but I'm grateful for it. (laughs) So Casper, now is time for our spiritual practice, and you get to lead us this week. Yes, I'm very excited to share with you a passage for our spiritual imagination practice. And a quick reminder, this is based on the wonderful St. Ignatius, who would invite us to imagine ourselves into the gospel stories and to see what we could learn about the stories and about ourselves by imagining ourselves into them. So I'm going to ask you, Vanessa, to close your eyes and try and imagine yourself to be Harry in this situation. He's in Lockhart's office and helping with the fan mail. The candles burned lower and lower, making the light dance over the many moving faces of Lockhart watching him. Harry moved his aching hand over what felt like the thousandth envelope, writing out Veronica Smethley's address. It might be nearly time to leave, Harry thought miserably. Please let it be nearly time. And then he heard something. Something quite apart from the spitting of the dying candles and Lockhart's prattle about his fans. It was a voice, a voice to chill the bone marrow, a voice of breathtaking, ice-cold venom. Come, come to me. Let me rip you. Let me tear you. Let me kill you. Poor Harry. The more I'm rereading these books, my heart just breaks for him more and more. And imagining myself in this scene, I was imagining how much 
this detention is probably a re-traumatizing moment of how he gets tortured at the Dursleys. He has no control. He has no idea when this is going to end. I mean, it's a fair punishment in some ways for the car incident, but... I just think it must be so hard to, like, not know how long he's going to be trapped in this room and how sweet it is that he's being optimistic, that he's like, maybe it'll be over soon rather than just sulking and being like, oh, my God, I'm going crazy. He is also he's confused about what it means to be a wizard. He doesn't know what that means. He doesn't know what his scar means. And now he's hearing a voice coming out of nowhere. I just... It has to be terrifying to be Harry Potter. And it's not just a voice. The voice is saying, let me kill you. This is really, really frightening. And of course, we know now that it's in parcel tongue. And so no one else is able to hear it in the way that Harry is. But he doesn't know that. So it's just another disorienting experience, which leaves him not only afraid, but deeply confused, especially when he finds out that Lockhart didn't hear it. So it makes a world that he's finally felt safe in unsafe all over again. And going through this is really giving me an appreciation for sacred imagination as a practice because I think because Harry is this hero who always gets into all these shenanigans, like I can forget how truly hard it is to be him. I think to some extent I start to see him through Ron's eyes and through Lockhart's eyes. Like he's this famous boy king who like comes into the magical world and can fly a broom better than anybody can in a hundred years. And But it just has to be so hard to not have any parents to write to, to not have anybody who's Really, it's their top priority to be worried about you. He has to go to fellow 12-year-olds with this news that he has heard a voice that nobody else heard saying, I want to kill you. I mean, his profound isolation and lack of control is just, I would find it debilitating. The other thing that strikes me is he's just been writing an endless list of names, names and addresses, names and addresses on all of these envelopes that are going to contain responses to fan mail. But he's really been blocking out Lockhart's prattle over the last four hours, right? He's just saying, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, that sounds interesting. And so he's really been kind of holding a silence. He's, he's built up that little protective wall in some way that we were talking about. And then suddenly here comes this invasive voice and it's repeating things, right? Come, come to me. Let me rip you. Let me tear you. It's a sort of counter mantra, which is taking over his, his consciousness and it's invaded his private space that he has built up in the last couple of hours. So there's something very intimate to this, in addition to the fact that no one else can hear it. I think which just makes it doubly frightening. Yeah, it had never occurred to me the extent to which this moment is really like a horror movie. I mean, he's hearing a voice and the voice is coming from inside the house, right? In that very cliche horror way. And I think by imagining myself in Harry's shoes in this moment, it's occurred to me like this is horrifying. This is absolutely horrifying. And there is an adult in the room who cannot explain it and cannot hear it and cannot make it better. And just the profound fear and isolation that Harry must be feeling in this moment. And if no one else can hear it, it, am I making it up? Am I having visions? Can I trust my experience? Right? All of those questions are brought up all over again. And oh, gosh. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you, Casper. It's time for this week's voicemail. And like many of you, our team is still 
processing and trying to make sense of our recent election here in the U.S., uh, even though it's been a couple of weeks. And we've received many beautiful and passionate, thoughtful voicemails from so many of you that we wanted to share one. And this one is from Andrew McIntyre in New York. Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Casper. Just wanted to let you guys know how much I love the podcast. It's been such a joy for me these past few months. I'm going to try and make it quick because I have a lot to say. But it's um, about 1.30 a.m. here on Friday after the election. Um, We're all still reeling a little bit here in New York. And I was thinking about not something in the podcasts, but in book seven, when Hermione, Ron, and Harry are all plotting how to go off and fight Voldemort without putting their families in danger. And Hermione reveals that she sent her family off to Australia. Um, She modified their memories so they have no idea who they are, that they even have her as a daughter. And in that moment, thinking about it through the lens of everything that's happened in the past few days, you know, I'm so blown away by the fact that she didn't leave with them. She could have modified her own memory or not modified her memory and she's gone into hiding with so many of the other muggle-borns and she didn't. She stayed to fight. And I think about so many of people here who have said, oh, I'll move to Canada enough so that the Canadian immigration website crashed. And so many people who are scared and hurting and maybe even in danger who want to leave. But I was thinking about my boyfriend, who's a black man, And just how helpless and worthless he felt seeing all of these people vote for Donald Trump. And then today I heard that the Ku Klux Klan was planning to have a rally in North Carolina. And I just, I felt so helpless. And I just, I felt so scared for him and so impotent and so angry that he has to live in a world where that is still a reality. And that we, I can't shelter him from that, but... You know, I I have to stay here. I have to fight. So, you know, we all have to stay here. We have to stand up for this, for the people who can't, for the people who don't have the privilege of leaving, who, you know, are in danger. You know, we have to use that power like Hermione. We have to be brave and magical and clever and do what we can to keep the world as good as we can in the face of this very shocking and disturbing turn of events. I'm so glad to see that you guys are continuing to be a beacon of light and hope for everyone in these very dark times. Love to you both. Thank you so much, Andrew. I know many people are feeling the way that you do, and I so appreciate the care and the courage that you have not only in sharing this voicemail, but clearly in in how you're making sense of this moment and what you feel called to do. I think pointing to Hermione in book seven inspires me too to think about what am I ready to do to protect the people I love? And I really hear in your story and in Hermione's a great love and therefore maybe unexpected courage, you know, that goes deeper than what we thought we were capable of. So thank you for sharing your story with us. And thank you to everyone who has sent in voicemails like this one. We are so appreciative for who you are and what you're doing in the world. Thank you. Vanessa, it feels like that voicemail was in itself a blessing, but maybe we can add just one or two more to characters from the pages of this chapter. Who are you feeling called to bless this week? I am feeling called to bless Miss Ginny Weasley. I think that Ginny throughout the novels is a real role model for 
a strong young woman with an active dating life. And I want to bless her for the moment that she's like casually perusing down to Hagrid's hut just to see if she can run into Harry while he's down there. I just, I, you know, I, I want to bless women with feelings and going after what it is that they want in the world. And I just love Jenny and find her love for Harry more than endearing, but like really inspiring. How about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless this week? My blessing is for Oliver Wood, not because he's handsome, but because he has clearly spent so much time and energy to create this strategic plan for the Quidditch team. You know, he's getting up the whole team at dawn. He's bringing them to the Quidditch pitch and he's sharing his analysis for more than half an hour, it seems. But what I want to bless him for in that is that he he's doing something. You know, he cares about this and he may not be the greatest leader. He may not always have the best ideas, but he is mobilizing his team and he is preparing for this competition that they're going to enter. And I just want to bless anyone who even if they feel they don't know the full plan, is doing their best to create something that will bring people into action. And I I just really identify with Oliver in that moment of, I don't know exactly what to do, but I know we need to do something. And here's my best effort. So to anyone who's feeling like that, I offer my blessing. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 8, The Death Day Party, through the theme of rumors. Please go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com, to book your ticket for our live show or to submit your Lectio Divina response for our middle school wizarding tournament. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. And you can send us your voicemails at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. Thank you to Andrew McIntyre for this week's voicemail, to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and to Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you next week. It's like, oh, I'm 35. Guess I'll start talking like this now. That was a weird Italian-Russian mix that there. Was, yeah, that was kind of Russian-Italian envoy. But let me try to do Hungarian. Serbus, Hodvod. It's um, very like this. No, <laughs> it's also Russian.